Arts, Lifestyle, SNS Online. touch the alien sand and hear the cries of strange birds and watch them wheel in another sky, would that satisfy you? A few hours ago, I discharged my last duty as king and emperor. And now that I have been succeeded by my brother, the Duke of York, my first words must be to declare my allegiance to him. This I do with all my heart. The Copacabana proudly presents Lola Lamar and Tony Starr. He reads the news practically 365 days in a year. It's very interesting. It must be very interesting. I mean, it must keep you very well informed. Oh, I don't know about that. I, I know very little about a lot of things. We have always fought for men and for our children. Now, we are prepared to fight for our own human rights and freedom. Can I tell you something? What? I can't tell anyone else. Then don't. If you have a secret, you must never tell it, except to an enemy. If you tell your best friend, inevitably the whole world will find out. I used to be afraid of you, Livanos. But not anymore. I am richer than you are. And I've never been this happy in my life. If I want to, I break your back like Hello and welcome to SNS Online. Today's special guest is an accomplished film, television and theatre director who has enjoyed incredible success on both sides of a pond. From helping to put Doctor Who on the map to directing dance numbers with Barry Manilow, he continues to this day to make his mark in a wide body of work, traversing many genres, filmed all around the world and featuring a host of familiar faces such as Anthony Hopkins, Shirley MacLaine, Joan Plowright, Elizabeth Taylor and Julie Walters, to name but a few. And on his travels, he has managed to collect both an Emmy and BAFTA alongside a host of other accolades. Welcome, one and all, to one of the true masters of the visual medium, Mr. Waris Hussein. Welcome to the show, Waris. I have to say it's an extraordinary honour for me to get to chat to you like this, and I would very much put you in the iconic category, sir. A BAFTA for uh, Edward and Mrs. Simpson, an Emmy for Coco Cabana, amongst a dazzling array of other TV and film uh, directorial masterpieces, including Shoulder to Shoulder and Intimate Contact. And it must be flagged up, Doctor Who's very first ever director back in 1963. Um, Be still my beating hearts, as they say. Uh, A very satisfying career to date, I would have thought. Well, you know, it's very interesting. Your uh, Doctor Who seems to be the uh, flag stone for my life. Uh, I'm saying that rather in a rather amusing way because uh, I have to acknowledge the fact that it actually was the jumping-off point for my career, and that for that I'm eternally grateful. Sure. Um, but I do want to emphasise that. I've done so many things since, and it's very difficult because, you know, once you're 
sort of once you've accomplished whatever you set out to do, uh, you move on. But I'm acutely conscious of um, the fact that unless you're in the public eye all the time, people tend to forget what you've done in between. Yes. And um, that sits rather heavily on me uh, as I observe time passing and I see people coming into my orbit and then exiting. And also the fact that in some ways what I am proud of is that I was the very first British Asian director doing what I do. Absolutely. And did. Since then, of course, inevitably, uh, others have come forward. Mm. Um, but it's a question of acknowledgement, I suppose. And uh, I'm always grateful for people finding me. Oh. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not a publicity seeker. I'm a very private person. And I, I like to lead my life in a, a quiet way. But of course, it's always nice to be acknowledged for what I've done. And the best part of all this was that a couple of years ago, the National Film Theatre was honored by the BFI, oh, I was honored, by a whole month of my work. Yes. Quite right, too. Well, thank you for that. But it was it spanned my television career. Obviously, they had to be selective. They couldn't choose everything I'd ever done. And the interesting thing is I'd actually forgotten what I'd done and how many things I'd done until somebody did a, a, a kind of, a, they did a research on my work. And uh, they called me up and said, did you realize you've done more than 70 or so BBC productions plus other things. Well, other things, of course, incorporate not just the BBC, but my ITV work. And then I crossed the Atlantic and I went off to America. So it was all incorporated into this additional material. And, and, and to be honest with you, I can't remember how I did all those things within the time frame that I was working. So at this stage, when one is sitting back and looking at one's work and into the past, um, I'm kind of astonished myself. Um, yes. And it's sort of rewarding, but also <laughs> rather worrying. <laughs> because quite honestly, I, I'm one of these people who never gives up. And um, I'm actually working on a couple of more projects now. But you know, time goes on. And um, I hope that uh, my past work will stand for itself and give me a future. Let's roll back to those early years to talk about your origins. Uh, born in Lucknow, Uttar Pradesh, uh, in as it was at the time part of colonial British India, your father Ali eventually being appointed to the Indian High Commission, and your mother, who was the highly respected author, journalist, poet, broadcaster and actor, Atiyah Hussain. What was it like yes. being brought up by someone so celebrated? And was it a case of the apple not falling far from the tree when it came to influencing your own career? Well... Uh, yes, it's it's an interesting background because we actually, as a family, uh, came to England uh, into post-war Britain uh, when things were pretty uh, dark and uh, England and Britain in general was uh, emerging from the war. Mm. So from uh, what I consider 
uh, a very sunny privileged background in India, even though it was threatened by war over there too, by the way, the Japanese were advancing. However, that didn't seem to touch the subcontinent as such. And so when we got here, I, uh, as a child, uh, was in wonderment uh, at seeing England, which was the mother country to what I'd been brought up in. And England was the focus of our lives. And English was my first language, actually. Mm. Um, I was brought up by nannies, English women, a formidable lady called Mrs. Leslie. And um, so when I got here, what astonished me was seeing so many fair-skinned people laboring yes. around the uh, uh, Tilbury docks where uh, the ship that brought us, the HMS Strathmore, had uh, birthed in uh, Tilbury. And I saw people fetching and carrying, and they were all white. Well, that was very amazing for me because in England, in India, uh, the white people did not fetch and carry. It was us Indians. Yes. <laughs> so that was the background to my life. But going back to my mother, I am very, very, very privileged to have been a part of her life. She was an extraordinary woman. Um, uh, she was also very beautiful. Uh, now, here's the problem. I know most children say their mothers are beautiful, but in this case, it was true. She was a legend in her own time in India. There was always a sort of saying that uh, people, when they came to India, should see two things. One was the Taj Mahal, and the other was Atiya. Well, <laughs> she never took it to heart. She always thought this actually uh, somewhat of a burden, because, you know, when you look like that, you're not supposed to have any brains and you're not supposed to be very intelligent, but actually she came top of her class in her college. She qualified to go to Cambridge, but wasn't allowed to go because she was a woman. Oh, that's awful. Uh, her eldest brother was sent off to Cambridge, but she wasn't able to do that. Anyway, she published a novel uh, while she was here, and uh, it was taken up by Chateau and Windus, and her editor was Cecil Day-Lewis. And through him, she met the elite of the literary world in those days. So um, it was wonderful to be able to acknowledge this. And I wrote this book and was dissatisfied with it. But I handed it in to the agent. And she was delighted and, and said that the person who was editing it and looking after it was Cecil Day Lewis. Well, I mean, I couldn't have dreamt such a thing happening. I, who had read his poems, and been, as I told you, that girl in my school, I enjoyed finding the core of an idea and finding that a sentence does not need so many words and a thought does not need that. And I did that. And it was published. Unfortunately, she did not pursue her writing, which she should have. There were many reasons for this, mm. but she also published a book of short stories. And I might say that right now, as we speak, uh, Virago Press are going to republish her books again. That's wonderful. And that is uh, for the future, as soon as this pandemic ends. That's and, wonderful. Uh, I'm very proud of that. I remember the days that have gone the springtime's garden filled with our gaiety like birdsong. I too 
could remember tables flowered with friends who have vanished like invisible writing. Where are they? And I also would add very quickly, uh, Vikram Sait, who wrote, as you know, A Suitable Boy, uh, whose book was just serialized for BBC television, acknowledged the fact that he was heavily influenced by my mother's novel. That's, so I would say that was something. That is, that is uh, quite a compliment. And, of course, she also worked for the BBC's Eastern Service, part of, a, of the Wells Service, and you were involved as well. It's quite a family concern. Yes, uh, I learned to, to, to be at ease in front of microphones, watching my mother go to the BBC on a regular basis uh, to Bush House, which in those days used to broadcast to both the Far East, India and Pakistan. And my mother was very fluent in both Urdu and Hindi, and even took part in uh, Shakespeare plays translated. Oh, it sounds like she was a wonderful woman. Were your parents religious at all? Uh, we were born into the Muslim faith, but I would say we're secular Muslims. We did not practice on a regular basis. Uh, we did not pray five times a day, though my mother was very much a Muslim at heart. Uh, she was very sensitive to this. And I take care to be respectful too, but I wouldn't say that I am because... My schooling, I was put into English schools. Um, I went to private school, prep school, public school, uh, university. I went to Cambridge. All of that added to my thinking on what kind of religion I belonged to. Um, at Clifton, where I was at school in Bristol, uh, we actually had a house for Jewish boys who on Saturdays would not attend because of uh, their Saturday observance of their own religion. and But I was in the minority being, I think, the only Muslim boy. And uh, I used to go to chapel. And um, I, I wondered what that was all about because we used to turn to the altar and say, I believe in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And I said to my mother, well, what am I supposed to say here? And she was very wise. She said, um, turn to the altar, say, I believe in God the Father, and then shut up. <laughs> so that's what I did. I also had a very good voice before it broke, and I was in the school choir. Oh. So if you were up to ask me today about hymns, I could actually sing you a hymn straight away, and I, I still remember the words. So that's where my religion is. I now realize that I am basically... Uh, multi-religious. Okay. That's how I call myself. But, as I would say, I was born into the Muslim faith, and I have a lot of strong feelings about that. And I wish I could impart that to those who don't understand. You studied English literature at Cambridge, where you got heavily involved in theatre with some very significant contemporaries, including Ian McKellen, Trevor Nunn, Derek Jacobi, Margaret Drabble, and more. A pretty formative years, I'm presuming. Yes, yes, yes. I was very privileged, and I went at a time when Cambridge was uh, quite golden, mm. in my opinion. Uh, it was in a sort of 
bubble because before me, a few, uh, the sort of generation before me were Peter Hall and uh, Jonathan Miller yes. and Frederick Raphael, who then wrote The Glittering Prizes, uh, which I ended up directing. And of course, that was I totally to do with Cambridge uh, at a time when Freddie Raphael was there before me. But I understood the texture and, his, and through his writing was able to direct with total knowledge of what I was dealing with. So basically at Cambridge, you know, what I was saying is Cambridge was a bubble at that time uh, in terms of uh, the kind of people who were there. And I know that other people followed. Mm. Uh, uh, a lot, but the group that I was with uh, ended up in very eminent theatre pieces as well as in the literature world. BBC One. Five seconds. Stand by two. Stand by the caption scanner. Stand by to cue Richard. Superimpose. Mix through a Q on two. Good evening. Within the last few minutes, we've heard that the Russians have launched. Now for viewers in London and the southeast. Central control to regional studios and switching centres for tonight's regional news opt-outs. Stand by, please. This is the BBC Television Service. We now present another programme in our series of experimental transmissions in colour. Switch out, regions. Switch out. And cut. take it back to um, when you joined the BBC in 1960 to train as a director. I think that was the same year uh, Television Centre officially opened. Um, do you remember the interview? My interview at the BBC, yes. Um, well, here's the thing. First of all, I ought to say how I got my interview because basically uh, they uh, had been aware of my work at, at Cambridge as a student and I had done a production of a Shaw Caesar and Cleopatra, a student production between the Marlowe Society uh, and the final year students at RADA, which is the first time the two groups, totally disparate groups, had been brought together. Mm. And uh, it was my idea, and I took it to George Rylands, who was my tutor at King's College, Cambridge. And I said to him, George, can we do something about this during the summer of uh, Easter vacations? And he actually made it possible, and it played at the Arts Theatre at Cambridge for a week and got very good reviews. As a result of it, the head of drama at the BBC requested uh, two tickets to come and see the production. Anyway, this is a prelude to my telling you that as a result of this, I filtered my way after uh, various interviews uh, with the BBC who gave me a choice of either going to the Eastern Broadcasting Service with Bush House, which had been sound radio. You're tuned to the General Overseas Service of the BBC. This is the British Broadcasting Corporation. Or an alternative was a very long shot at television because I wanted to go into television. And at that stage, at my age, I was very young. And uh, television in those days was... Uh, directed by a group of very senior people in well into their 50s. Uh, the, the sort of Cecil B. De Mill of television at the time was a man called Rudolf Cartier. Mm. He did all the epics. Anyway, I got my way finally after many, many interviews. 
to the idea of doing, being interviewed for this possibility. And the final interview came and I said to them, they said, look, we can offer you uh, a pensionable job with radio, which at the end of it all would mean that you'll end up with a pension, or a six-month trial without any future guarantees. Gosh. Uh, television. Which do you choose? If we train you and then drop you if we want to at the end of six months. Ah. Well, I was shaking in my shoes because yes. my father, who would finance my entire education, had already arranged for two very good jobs in India. One was in Burma Shell, which is an oil company, and the other was uh, an advertising company, J. Walter Thompson's. So I had two very good job offers, Gosh. and I was fighting it like mad. I said, give me one more year, I said to my dad. He said, well, I can't subsidize you beyond that. And it was within this year that I was really fighting to get my place. And thank God I finally got to, but that, there was a hitch, which I will share with you. Um, they interviewed me finally and said, well, if we uh, do give you the TV situation with no guarantees, we will drop our offer to do the pensionable job. And I said, okay. And so now I was hanging by my bootstraps. <laughs> and, um, then I got a notice to say, thank you for coming to see us. Unfortunately, we're not able to offer you the job, but we will shortlist you. If anybody falls through, you'll be the first person on our priority list. And I did not know what to tell my parents. And I hid the letter. And I don't know, I, I really lived through hell at that time. And then, you won't believe it, I actually went to audition for a small part uh, because they saw my photo. I put my photo in uh, Spotlight, Spotlight yeah. which is the actor's uh, catalogue. Uh, and um, a, a director had seen it, and he thought I looked Middle Eastern enough to come and audition. And um, so when I went to see him, uh, he said, we've got a small part of a radiographer in the desert and in, in the Arab desert. Uh, we he will be reporting on what's happening. And I and would you be happy to do it? And I said, oh, yes, absolutely. I said, they said, right. Uh, well, I said, could you give me the script? Oh, no, no, no. You'd have to be improvising it. Oh, well, I couldn't speak a word of Arabic. And I went home with my tail between my legs, having said yes. And uh, they were offering me the wonderful salary of 75 quid. And I said to my mother, what the heck do I do now? And she said, oh, my God, you better go upstairs. There's an Arab lady who lives upstairs. Ask her to write something down in Roman lettering, oh. uh, to, how to speak Arabic. And while I was in the middle of this muddle, on the Friday before I started uh, this one-man uh, monologue in Arabic, uh, I didn't know how I was going to deal with it. I got a phone call from the BBC. They said, somebody's dropped out from our uh, trainee course. Can you start on Monday? Oh, wonderful. And I said, uh, 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 what about my uh, contract with you to play? <laughs> they said, oh, we'll, we'll take care of that, they said. And they did. And I turned up on the Monday suit and tie with my little suitcase <laughs> and i joined the trainee class that time thank god for that particular breakthrough i i 
the director who fell through became was very well known actually but he decided to fall out at the last minute mm. so i always thank him now whenever i see him thank you very much for giving me the opportunity and i joined for 6 months and uh thank god at the end of it they i did a, a, a they, we all had to do a graduation exercise and i chose a one act play by tennessee williams a uh, one act with two characters set in the studio i directed it uh, uh, the best way i could and uh, they took me on that is what that, that's my story that's wonderful Did you feel a little more protected um as a gay man and a, a man of color working in a largely educated creative environment like that? I mean despite the time it was. Well, interesting enough being gay, that's something we should actually talk about. In those days one did not discuss it at all, certainly not in the early 60s. Um however, uh and indeed not in my culture. I still lived at home. Uh I respected my family very much and it was very difficult for me because I was very confused about myself. I had not acknowledged my own sexuality totally at that time. I was actually making every attempt to date girls. Mm. In fact, I had a string of well, string at sound that that sounds terribly arrogant to me no i was actually seeing one or two very beautiful girls on a platonic basis i mean i would go out with them i would escort them we'd be seen in public and i was always very polite and saw them to their home and said good night and came home so that was the degree of my attempt to be who i was not so when it when it comes to the whole basic situation um i was totally hidden uh i wasn't in torment as a lot of my colleagues were and believe me uh the bbc had its quota there but not one of them acknowledged who they were or what they were about sure. uh i knew them by sight because i could sense certain things that were happening and uh, in those days people haunted certain bathhouses yeah and in those days one was possibly there in a very self-conscious way and one or two film producers and television producers mm-hmm. used to be and we always averted our eyes from each other we never said anything we went back to our work at television center yeah. and nobody said a thing wow. so that was the degree of my sexuality yeah I didn't have any adventures. I didn't have any expressions of myself in that area. Uh it took me a long time uh to realize that this is where I was heading and gradually through one reason or another I decided I had to do something about it. Uh meanwhile I was doing some very good work with the BBC. I was doing play of the month, I was doing the Wednesday play, but by writers like Simon Gray, Freddie Raphael of course. Mm. Um so sex was sort of secondary. Yeah. But it emerged in one particular way because I met a very very talented uh director. Sorry, not a director, um 
com composer, composer. And his music overwhelmed me. It was the music that overwhelmed me first. <laughs> and then I realized this person was not only talented, but was very special. And I started seeing him. And that's what started that area of my life. Oh, that's, that's lovely. That's lovely. What were you cutting your cloth on before Doctor Who arrived? I think you did a spell on Compact, the BBC soap at the time. Compact was um, basically what I was, I was attached to it. Oh, okay. Uh, I had to follow other directors, basically, and uh, didn't have much input just to see how they worked. And in those days, Compact was a twice weekly serial which went out. And don't forget, there was no opposition, basically. ITV had hardly started. And uh, there was nothing like Compact. Um, I don't think even the Coronation Street had started then. So the entire British public depended on this twice a week series based in a woman's magazine about what happened to the people there. Yes, sir. Compact reception. Yes, madam, yes, it is on sale today. And it was all done on a very tight budget and one episode went out uh, live. One was recorded, went out, one, one went out live. And it demanded a lot of skill from everybody, you know, because, God, if anything went wrong, yes, it showed on the screen. <laughs> yeah. Finally, I was given my first episode. And guess what happened? Um, I was very careful how to plot everything, the moves and everything else that went with it. And... Um, don't forget, I was dealing with all these actors who, by the way, were entrenched in the public eye. I remember going in there and saying to an actress, oh, do you mind if I asked you to move from here to there and do this, that and the other? And she turned to me and said, my character would never do that. <laughs> so I had to then tell her, well, if you'd just like to move from the desk to the filing cabinet, I'd be very happy. Happy, And that's what happened. But anyway, uh, I was directing her when all this went according to plan i plotted the scenes with all my shots all planned out and was a live transmission i'm sitting up in the control room we'd rehearsed it all it was all done in one day by the way and uh, suddenly camera one as we went transmission shook his head but he's not on yet but to say that he was about to fade out and suddenly everything that was planned was now in jeopardy and we were live and i felt like that character that doris day played in the where she piloted the whole jumbo jet <laughs> you know she finally landed the plane because someone was telling her what to do well no one was telling me what to do i just sat there telling whatever cameras were available uh, to take the shots that camera one had now faded out on terrified that any minute now they would be facing each other and the actors and the whole thing would end up in disaster. Well, as it happened, we managed to get through it without anything like that happening. Amazing. And at the end of it, I called the shots, the credits went up and I collapsed in the control room. They took me off to the barn, gave me a very large gin and tonic. I should think so too. And um, I think that's what made me pass actually. Yes. Uh, once I passed that terrifying ordeal, I think they decided they were going to keep me on. Yes, 
No, absolutely. Because I remember the um, the uh, the pilot episode when we we get to Doctor Who. That was uh, that was uh, fraught with uh, troubles oh, as well. That was another. One. Well, you see, I, I seem to be, <laughs> I, I I seem to be fated with uh, uh, testing times. <laughs> Pilot for Doctor Who was another uh, example of this. Uh, bearing in mind we were working in one of the worst conditions ever given to us. We were working in Studio D, Lime Grove. Lime Grove, as was. <laughs> uh, it used to be a news studio where they did news uh, reports from. Anyway, they gave us this really defunct place with huge equi camera equipments that, you know, just with nothing to do with the very smart and uh, glittering television center mm. which we were sort of alienated from so we had to create this science fiction drama from the depths of uh, this terrible uh, studio in Lime Grove. Why wouldn't you believe us? We just want you to tell us the truth. You have heard the truth. We are not of this race. We are not of this earth. We are wanderers in the fourth dimensions of space and time, cut off from our own planet and our own people by eons and universes that are far beyond the reach of your most advanced sciences. The, the pilot, as a result, was a disaster. Everything went wrong. And Sidney Newman, who uh, started the whole thing off, took us out to dinner, Verity and me, Verity Lambert and myself, and said, uh, by rights, I should be firing both of you, but I'm going to give you another chance. Now, you have to understand... Never in the history of the BBC had there ever been such a thing as a pilot episode. Uh, we didn't do things like that. They, they did that in America, but not here. So to get the chance to do it again was unbelievable. And uh, the second time around, of course, we learned from our mistakes. And we all knew how to cope when things might potentially go wrong. I mean, weren't, we weren't given any extra facilities. We were still in Studio D. We weren't transferred to Television Center to those wonderful studios there. We were simply back to where we were, but we all knew how to deal with it. And the result is the very first episode of Doctor Who, which we're, of course, very proud of. Yes, absolutely. Have you ever thought what it's like to be wanderers in the fourth dimension? Have you? To be exiles? Susan and I are cut off from our own planet, without friends or protection. But one day, we shall get back. Yes, one day. One day. I get the impression, based on the docudrama from 2013, Mark Gatiss's uh, a brilliant um, adventure in space and time, yes. um, you were almost like you were drafted into it. <laughs> you weren't giving them an awful lot of choice. Well, you know, it's, again, a very nice and funny story. They gave it to a very uh, senior director there. As I told you, most of them were in their 40s and 50s and they, they were doing sterling work and I was the new boy on the block hanging around uh, you know doing compact and wondering where my future lay <laughs> and when this thing came up this 
peculiar show called Doctor Who, which nobody at the BBC believed in, apart from Sidney Newman, who created it, and Verity Lambert, who'd been brought in from ITV. Mm. Again, a female. No, Never before in the history of television had they found a female producer. So she was gossiped about, and so was I. I mean, can you think of two more uh, extraordinary people to be assigned this kind of show, which in itself was extraordinary, you know, a, a British Asian uh, and this very elegant lady, but there we were and lumbered with this show. So um, we had to deal with it in the best way we could. That must have been a very bonding experience for you and Verity. Well, we became very good friends as a result of this. Don't be fooled, Warris. That's all it is front. Inside, I'm shaking like a leaf. I'm here by the skin of my bloody teeth. First Indian director this place has ever had. So we've got to stick together, haven't we? Make our little show work. That'll teach them. Who? The old guard. This sea of fag smoke, tweed and sweaty men. <laughs> Listen, I overheard a couple of old horrors standing by the tear. They said... Well, she didn't get here standing up, did she? Sydney's bit of fluff, am I? No, well, that seems to be the impression. And how else could you get a promotion like this? A promotion like what? I'm trying to recreate the Stone Age with Airfix glue and bloody baker foil. We're trying to. Yes. Yes. Sorry. Well, here's to us. The scripts weren't brilliant. They were all about creating fire in the Stone Age. I mean, how do you deal with people called Arganog? <laughs> and grunting and trying to make them convincing. <laughs> to make, you know, we had to be careful that it just didn't become a, you know, it could have been the butt of a lot of jokes and a lot of laughter and mockery. Mm. And if you actually look at it now, it's not. It actually worked. And that was because we said, I said to Verity, how are we going to do this? And she said, we're going to have to make it work. And we just took it very seriously. She said, look, let's just play this. As if it's, uh, and in fact, there was a film that came out very near there with Raquel Welsh called One Million Years BC or something, you know? Uh, suddenly people were running around in skins. <laughs> so we weren't too far off. This is a strange creature. He's a uh, son of the fire maker, afraid of an old man. Uh, when will Tsar make fire come from his hands? When Orb decides it. Orb is for strong men. Orb has sent me this creature to make fire come from his fingers. I have seen it. Inside, he's full of fire. And the smoke comes from his mouth as lies come out of yours. But I, I would say that, um, I mean, obviously the first episode is magic in, in its whole introduction um, to the series. But those other three episodes are very uh, intense television. I, I, I caught them, I think, years later in the, the Five Faces of Doctor Who. They did a series of repeats and I, I'd never seen it before. And I was just, um, I was taken by by the intensity of, of, of the situation, of the life or death situation, the fact they couldn't get back to the TARDIS, um, they, yeah. were, they were trapped, this feeling of being trapped. And I, I, thought it was, I thought it was really, really effective. I mean, of course, the Daleks put Doctor Who on the map, but that was a good first story for me. Yes. Well, I'm glad you think so, because that's, that was our attempt, and hopefully successfully, to get through what we had in our hands. Uh, I did not consider myself qualified at the start when I got the handful of scripts thinking, 
my God, you know, here am I, educated in Shakespeare, yes. and um, ended up directing people in skins saying Arganog. What was William Hartnell like to work with? William was a very interesting character. He had been prominent in films, uh, playing secondary but important roles. Uh, and um, he actually was very reluctant to take the role because he felt uh, it was beneath him to do a television series. Mm. And it was only after a lot of very expensive dinners on my behalf and Verities, and also on Sidney Newman's, that he actually accepted it thinking it probably last a short time and it would put him on the map somehow, but no beyond that. Mm. He was the ultimate post-war wartime Englishman, straight-backed, patriotic, saluted the flag, and when he suddenly got faced by mm -hmm. uh, a young Indian <laughs> and, and a female, mm. he didn't know what to do with it. And uh, he was very self-defensive to start with. And uh, I won't put it past him because he was that rigid sort of British attitude towards foreigners. And I had to deal with that. So anyway, uh, apart from the fact that I spoke good English, I think that kind of impressed him. But the fact was that when we came to our first rehearsal, uh, which was all in some uh, uh, hall in the middle of nowhere, we used to do these in uh, various halls and uh, with marked out floors with yellow tape, meant to be sets, of course, with props. And uh, when we started rehearsals, I was you know, I was planning on plotting the shots. And at one point I said, uh, William, I'd like you to move here and then move over there. And he said, oh, I don't think about that. I think I'd more, I'd like to move over here. <laughs> and I said, oh, all right, William. Well, that fine. You just move over where you want to. But I'll just tell you one thing. My camera won't be able to cover you on that. So Aww. all we'll do is we'll, we'll have you walk out a shot then come back in if you like. And when he realized it, I he, didn't it like that. He, he said, oh, no, no, in that case, well, where will you be then? Where will I be? And then he, of course, went back to uh, listening to what I was trying to do. And he listened. And the funny thing was his initial truculence and reluctance to be a part of it, he actually not only took it on board, but we then evolved into a very good relationship. Uh, through the time that I was on the show, because I did not only the first four, but then I did the Marco Polo episodes, which have now got lost. Is your name Marco Polo? It is, my lady, and may I ask who you are? Oh, we're, we're travellers, yes. That's my grandchild, Susan, and that's Miss Wright, and that's Charlton. <laughs> Chesterton. Ian Chesterton. My companions are the Lady Ping Cho and the Warlord Tegant. We travel to Shangtu. Shangtu? That's in China, isn't it? China? I do not know this place. Shangtu is in Cathay. Oh, silly of me. Yes, of course, Cathay. By that time, he and I become very good friends, uh, very respectful of each other. And uh, when I was leaving, he was genuinely uh, friendly and emotional in a way about my going, and I was too. And did it feel like history was being made at the time? Or, or, or did you not have the time to have any awareness of that? You were just trying to get on with making this show in the time allocated, etc., etc. 
no, none of us, none of us thought we no. I mean, none of us knew about the uh, success of Doctor Who, uh, honestly, because the BBC had given it, I think, six months at the most. Uh, you know, and it started off very in a very rocky way because, as you know, the first episode was going to be broadcast, and it happened to be on the same night that uh, Kennedy was shot, and uh, the killing and the assassination had a terrible effect on everybody. And I thought, well, that's the end of it. But then the BBC did hold on, and they repeated the uh, first episode. Uh, but none of us knew that this show would continue right up till now. Um, and, um, of course, for me, it was a launching pad in order to be able to move on. And... Uh, uh, ultimately ended up uh, with the play for today, the Wednesday play, and uh, the classics that we also did. Um, you know, these were these were these were shows that I was very privileged to be involved with. Um, so Doctor Who was my jumping-off show. So as you rightly say, it wasn't just Doctor Who. You worked on so many wonderful productions, including many plays. Uh, tell us about your memories of working on The Passage to India. Uh, it was allocated to another director. This seems to be my fate most of the time. Um, it was going to be done by another director. It was going to be an epic production. However, not to be shot in India. It was going to be shot in England. But, but the whole implication of this classic was it would be a very important production. Um, I was very upset when I heard it was going to be done and I was not being considered uh, for it. Um, however, I was going to go to India for a holiday and Peter Luke, the producer, said to me, uh, while you're in India, it would be good enough to do some exterior shots for us, which we might be able to incorporate into the show. Wonderful. And I said, well, yes, if that's what you want me to do. And um, so I went off to India and the BBC furnished me with a 16mm camera and a crew. In those days it was all black and white anyway. So I had to guess, thinking, what would they need if, they, if I was doing it? So I took various establishing shots of exteriors and the law courts where I knew a scene was going to take place and Fielding's house where I think I knew where he might, he might want to live. And I took all these bits of film, basically. Uh, the train journey to the caves, I took that thinking, well, if I was doing this, I would use it for... In those days, we used to do back, back projection at Ealing Studios uh, so that you'd see it outside the windows of the railway carriage if that was going to be used. I mean, I was guessing, guess, guesswork all the way through. When I came back to England, I found that the director had fallen very seriously ill and he was not going to be able to do it. Oh. And by this time, the production was already being put together. And of course, who would they possibly go to but me because of my film extracts? <laughs> so apart from that, we were not, de we had started off by adapting the novel per se, and we'd even got a writer standing by. And then Forster, who was still alive and living in King's College, Cambridge, said he did not want his novel dramatized. He did not give permission for that. What he had given permission for was the four act stage production, which had been performed in the West End. Well, that 
limited everything. I mean, we thought, well, we're doing the play, we're not doing the novel. And this was a huge disappointment because we couldn't choose the key moments from the novel. What I did do was to go to Cambridge and sit at his feet. He was still alive and I'd graduated, but I knew he had a, a partiality, shall I say, for nice Indian gentlemen. <laughs> and I put my hat on full of charm. And I said, to, <laughs> said Mr. Forster, I said, looking at him with my innocent look, wouldn't you at least consider allowing some of us to put this into our production because it's a four-act play, very talky, and we're already going to have to make it visual, but wouldn't it be lovely if we could put some of the scenes that are discussed and show them, for instance, the scene where Mrs. Moore meets Aziz at the mosque. Could I not shoot the mosque scene? And could I not shoot the arrival to the caves, which are very important, the journey to the caves and then the arrival? And he said, is that all you want to do? And I said, well, that would be sufficient if you would allow me to do that. And he said, well, in that case, I agree. So I was able to go out and we filmed the mosque exteriors at the Woking Mosque, Mosque Woking at night. And then the interior at Ealing Studios, where Mrs. Moore and Aziz have their conversation. And then we did the the railway carriage sequence uh, with the backdrop that I'd used, the back projection in the railway carriage. So it at Lee and their approach to the actual caves, which we shot of all things, uh, at a location we found had you been used in Black Narcissus years ago simulating the Himalayas. Mm -hmm. uh, and I managed to find the last living person who'd worked on Black Narcissus, who told me that it was Toad Rock Tunbridge Wells. So off <laughs> we went to Tunbridge Wells, which if you look at it from a certain angle, looks quite impressive, but it's surrounded at the base by a lot of suburban houses. Mm. So I had my actors climbing up Toad Rock and then they ended up in the studio uh, caves that we built at the uh, television center. That was how I was able to open up whatever I could with my limited resources uh, for passage to India, of which I might say I'm extremely proud because I got the most wonderful cast. I had Cyril Cusack as Fielding, and he was just brilliant. He could have been a sort of personification of Forster. I had Sybil Thorndike. Dame Sybil Thorndike, mm. I could only call her Dame Sybil, playing um, Mrs. Moore, and Virginia McKenna playing uh, Adler Quested, and Zia Mohedin, who played it originally on broad, uh, Broadway and in uh, the West End, he played Aziz. So I was very, very fortunate in my casting. She wants to understand a little about India too. Oh, who understands yeah. India? Not the Indians, at least. <laughs> <laughs> you would be able to explain a disappointment we had this morning. Well, of course, it may be some form of Indian etiquette. Oh, no, no, no. There is no question of etiquette. We are by nature a most informal people. <laughs> may I know the facts? Well, an Indian couple had invited us to call them and were to send their carriage for us. We waited and waited and, and waited. It never came. 
I think they were ashamed of their house, and that is why they did not send it. Ah, yes, now that's, that's quite uh, possible, you know. I do so hate mysteries. How very English are you, Miss Cassidy? Oh, I dislike them not because I'm English, but from a personal point of view. Well, I rather like mysteries, but I do dislike muddles. your first major film project in 1969, A Touch of Love, uh, which was entered into the 19th Berlin International Film Festival. Uh, that involved a number of your Cambridge contemporaries, didn't it? Including Margaret Drabble, who wrote it, and uh, also Ian McKellum in, in his first film. Yes. Uh, Maggie wrote uh, a book called The Millstone, which was made into a, a film scripted by her. It's the only time Maggie Drabble actually wrote a script from her own novel. And for a first time screenwriter, I can tell you, it was amazing. Uh, the script that was offered to us hardly had any changes to be made. And I was privileged enough to direct that. Uh, it was as a result of my television work where the producers had seen my work. Mm. And uh, this was, by the way, their first uh, entry into the sort of serious literary world of filming as opposed to... They used to make, basically, horror films. There were two Americans living here. And their films were always uh, House of the Drip Blood kind of title. title. <laughs> but they were following very much in a sort of minor key to hammer horror films. Okay. But they decided to invest in this one project and it was Maggie's novel. Uh, it was written, at, it was about a single mother at a time when women were not supposed to be single mothers in the early 60s. Uh, and um, it was about uh, uh, an intellectual. Uh, there were single mothers, of course, because Ken Loach did one uh, about Cathy Come Home. Yes, of course. But that was about working class conditions in social uh, conditions that weren't what Maggie was writing about was a upper middle class intellectual story. But of course, that's as relevant to anybody else in that social strata. Yeah. And I knew again that kind of world. And it was a privilege to direct it uh, with Ian McKellen in his very first movie yes. role. Oh, George, this is Rosamond. Rosamond Stacey. Hello. Haven't I seen you before, Summer? You don't work here? Good Lord, no. She virtually lives in the British Museum. An academic, our Rosamond. Oh, really? Yes, really. You're a real announcer, I believe. What do you announce? Oh, come off it, Ros. You must have seen him. He's hardly ever off the bloody box. He reads the news practically 365 days in a year. It's very interesting. It must be very interesting. I mean, it must keep you very well informed. Oh, I don't know about that. I know very little about a lot of things. I remember asking him to do this. Um, he actually was reluctant. He said, oh, no worries, I'm a theatre director, a theatre actor. Yeah. So I had to persuade him to play this part, and he finally agreed. And I can say with some pride that I was the first director in his uh, now very eminent film life. Yes, it was his first film. I think he'd done a TV version of David Copperfield before, but he was pretty well new to the whole world, wasn't he? Yes, yes, exactly. And Eleanor Brom was in that one as well, wasn't she? Eleanor, well, yes, of course, Eleanor. But Eleanor was my contemporary at Cambridge too. I, 
I acted with her uh, in a couple of Tennessee Williams short plays. Um, and she was a wonderful friend, and she still is. Um, and when I was casting the film, uh, I tried to fall back on all my uh, Cambridge acquaintances. In fact, some of them are some in lesser roles in the film. My good friend Roger Hammond played a small part. But uh, when I had to find a best friend for the heroine, uh, which, by the way, is played by Sandy Dennis, an American actress, and that's another story as to how she came to it. Without her, we wouldn't have been able to finance the film. But uh, I had to find a best friend part and um, who would play it, and I asked Eleanor to do it, and of course she did a sterling job. She actually balanced uh, Sandy's uh, participation because Sandy had to really be careful how she spoke. Uh, this was such an upper-middle-class Fabian socialist character that you couldn't get it wrong, and she had a, a speech coach with her, but I had to keep constantly reminding her that she couldn't say something in a particular way or how she phrased her uh, delivery because she was very well known in America for her quirky acting as a rather very all-American actress. She'd just been nominated for uh, her part as Honey in uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf with the, the Burtons. So anyway, uh, I'm very proud of uh, having achieve that via Sandy and uh, Eleanor and Ian. You're listening to Warris Hussein on SNS Online. Plenty more coming up in part two, including... We also emptied out a whole set of hotels in Bath for the Burton Taylor entourage. <laughs> I now realise that we could never have shot on four cameras because Delight Elizabeth alone took a very long time when you're a diva of her waiting. While we were shooting, uh, the rumour got out that one of the papers were going to publish a headline, Gay Director's Lover Dying While He Directs AIDS Drama. It was the classic New York set at Warner Brothers, which has been used multiple times in films. And I was there sitting on this incredible contraption saying i'm back i'm in hollywood i said part two of our extended interview with Warris hussein available now <laughs>